all bow with me. Father Yahweh, we thank you so much for the blessings you've given all of us, the health, our families. Uh, We just can't name all of them, Father, but we're just grateful and humble, and we just thank you and praise you. We thank you for the word. We thank you for your language and how we, through the centuries, through thousands of years, how it's been preserved for us, Father, so we can follow you. And again, we thank you and praise you through the name of your great Son, Yeshua. Hallelujah. You may all be seated. Shalom Alakim. All right. I got some people listening. I was just checking. Some of our Hebrew classes out there. In Genesis 11, we can see the division of man by the hand of Yahweh. Mankind was advancing too quickly. Yahweh slows down man's progress using language. Language can act as a barrier, but it can also act as a conduit. The sacred texts that make up our Bibles have been transferred to us by the sacred tongue and the language of the Almighty. In verse 1 of Genesis 11, it says, Now the whole earth, the whole world, had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them accordingly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Yahweh said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Just a quick notation, the phrase, come, let us go down. Haba nerada in Hebrew. Come is haba, nerada, let us go down. Nerada comes from the verb yarad, which means to go down or descend. But different from that is nerada, and that means let us in the plural form. We see this word only three times in the Hebrew with this meaning. And this here is the first reference. Because of this word, the narrative shows more than one. I believe this is Yahweh and his pre-existing son having a conversation and making a decision. Could this be angels, as some believe? Probably. It could could possibly be. But uh, we see a few chapters later in Genesis 19.24 more description with two Yahwehs, one on earth and one from heaven, Hashemayim, which can be translated the highest heavens in Hebrew. Yahshua's name literally means Yahweh is salvation, as he shares his father's name Yahweh in a descriptive sense. The name Yahshua is a contraction of the verb Yasha in Hebrew, which means to deliver, and the tetragrammaton. James Strong brings this out in his concordance in defining the word origin. The translation Joshua, you might be familiar with, was the result, except, of course, the J would uh, be the equivalent to the Hebrew Yod, the Y. Yeshua simply means salvation in Hebrew, and it removes that understanding. It lacks the richness and relation of the father to his son and that family name, that name that we see from Genesis on, those two Yahwehs and later Uh, Yahweh is salvation. The son took on the name of the father and became our intercessor. I believe he was the Malak Zadik, the king of Salem in Genesis 14, that Abraham tithed to. He had no written genealogy, according to the apostle Paul. Malak Zadik literally means in Hebrew, the king of righteousness. We also see the righteous branch, which we even sang on the song, from David's lineage. Yahshua will also have a name change once again to Yahweh Tzidkenu in Jeremiah 23, 5-6, if you wanted to look at that later. And Yahweh Tzidkenu literally means Yah, our righteousness. Also, the references to the son of Elohim, Lavar Elohain, 
in the Hebrew, like in Daniel 3.25, which I believe is Yahshua walking with Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the fiery furnace, but that's another topic. But continuing on here in verse 8, so Yahweh scattered them from over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth. From there, Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Flash forward 5,500 years, and man has solved that problem thanks to Google Translate. Think of the knowledge. It's funny, but I mean, it's true. Think of the knowledge that has been shared through the internet without these barriers we have. In just a short time, debauchery and evil has also advanced just as quickly. Could this be a sign of the return of our Messiah? Removing the barriers of language as we have today, I believe, speeds up that prophecy. Man's languages are an interesting study, especially the original language born in the Middle East. The area scripture centers around and where mankind multiplied from is what we know today as classical Hebrew. The inspired word of Yahweh has been preserved through the the original tongue. So my message today is more of a presentation than a sermon. I want to give a very basic history of Hebrew and its sister language, Aramaic. Hebrew is important to us because language and culture go together. By learning Hebrew, we also add a piece of that culture of ancient scripture to us. It becomes more real. To have a working understanding of the original language of Scripture opens the door to the richness of the original text. In our information age, we have a fantastic source known as the Strong's Concordance. It helps us to understand the Greek and Hebrew of the originals. We can act like little scholars running around looking up words. It's an amazing tool. Uh, We included it in the uh, Restoration Study Bible, along with the, uh, the Strong's numbering in the running text. But it doesn't replace learning the Hebrew language. Doing so allows us to get in the minds of the Hebrew scribes and the culture in which they lived. The richness of the vocabulary at times gives us an almost poetic understanding that can transport us back to the patriarchs. Hebrew works together with archaeology to create a time machine into the history of our forefathers. If you've ever been to Israel... And you can see archaeology everywhere. It's amazing. It literally is amazing. I'm blown away every time I go there. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther made this comment regarding the language of Scripture. Do you inquire what use there is in learning the languages? Do you say, we can read the Bible very well in German? Without the languages, we cannot have received the gospel. Languages are the scabbard that contains the sword of the spirit. They are the casket which contains the priceless jewels of antique thought. They are the vessel that holds the wine. If we neglect the languages, we shall eventually lose the gospel. No sooner did men cease to cultivate the languages than Christendom declined. Even unto it fell under the undisputed dominion of the Pope. But no sooner was this torch relighted Then this papal owl fled with a shriek in the congenial gloom. If the languages had not made me positive as to the true meaning of the word, I might have still remained a chained monk engaged in quietly preaching Romish errors in the obscurity of the cloister. The Pope, the Safists, and their anti-Christian empire would have remained unshaken. Someone doesn't mind giving me some water. I would appreciate that. Martin Luther is a man that had his faults, but his remarks do illustrate an important point of how the original languages initiated the Reformation. And many here today came from Protestantism, the very Reformation that started from Martin Luther. That would not have happened if he had not studied the original languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Today, I want to cover with you some important Hebrew facts. Aramaic, its history and importance to Hebrew and to the texts. How the Hebrew alphabet evolved in its relation to Aramaic. Thank you, Lucas. He even gave me ice. 
and went all out. Who were the Masoretes? And a brief history of modern Hebrew and its founder. A few years ago, we decided to take classical Hebrew courses here at the ministry to have a better grasp of the original scripture. But uh, part of this was due to the fact that more and more ideas are cropping up all over the internet. Hebrew experts that have esoteric interpretations based on ancient text. In today's message, I will be using principles from academic Hebrew. This will be what is taught at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, for instance. The curriculum taught at most Christian seminaries around the world is also based off the same curriculum from the Hebrew University. And I would like to take this time to mention one thing that's kind of bothered me, and I've noticed this on the internet. Derogatory statements from leaders in the Messianic movement regarding seminaries. I don't know if you know, but uh, in seminaries, they don't just teach Hebrew. They teach Koine Greek. They teach Ugaritic, uh, Aramaic. They teach a, a plethora of different languages. And we need to respect what many of these that graduate seminary learn, because it's no joke. I've, uh, I've taken partially taken some of these courses, like with William Barrick at Master's Seminary, and I can tell you for sure this is very systematic and thorough um, understanding of the language. But sadly today, there is a lack of linguistic education in this movement, and far too many people are making up their own form of Hebrew. Just ask Lucas, I'm sure he can tell you, because he has to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. I recommend the diligent Bible student to at least have a working understanding of biblical Hebrew. There are several good academic courses out there. This is one we recommend. It's uh, Basics of Biblical Hebrew. It's taught by uh, Miles Van Pelt, Ph.D. He also teaches Basics of uh, Aramaic. You can find this course online at Zondervan or uh, Amazon's got it as well. And they have a, a really good app if you just want to learn some Hebrew words. It's, uh, it's, um, it is called uh, Biblical Hebrew Flashcard Van Pelt on Google Play. It's free. And um, it's really good if you just want to learn the words. Hebrew has the oldest alphabet in use today. It is over 4,000 years old. Hebrew was considered a dead language after around 200 CE, where it was just used in literary form, read in the synagogues on the Sabbath, but after about 1,700 years, it was revived as the spoken language we know today in Israel. It is the only successful example of a dead language that has been revived in history. Today we have two forms, classical Hebrew, or biblical Hebrew, and modern Hebrew, And you really need to understand there's a difference there. We see people corresponding with the ministry all the time, confusing the two, trying to prove new teachings with modern Hebrew grammar. Before Hebrew was revived, only one West Semitic language was still in use, and that is Aramaic, which I will get to a little later. Hebrew is known as an abjad language. I know it's kind of a funny-sounding word, but it's pretty simple to understand. It is a language that only contains consonants in its alphabet. The name Abjad comes from the first letters of the Arabic alphabet. Technically, Hebrew is an impure Abjad because it has vowel pointing, and some letters like Yod, He, and Wow can be used as vowel consonants. The vowels of the language are known by the reader, but they are not written down. Only consonants are written. This is true of most uh, ancient Semitic languages. That's because they're all related. People say Hebrew does not have vowels, and that is entirely 100% not true. And we hear that constantly. All languages have vowels. You can't speak a language without vowels because vowels are spoken with the open mouth. And they tie consonants together. Try to speak a language without opening your mouth. One of the standards you learn in classical Hebrew is that for every vowel, there is a consonant, and this helps syllabify the word. Hebrew is written from right to left as opposed to English, which is written from left to right. 
Hebrew uses the Aramaic square script. The Jews adopted this alphabet during about the time of Ezra, after the Babylonian exile. I believe Aramaic is a Hebrew derivative that goes back to the original Hebrew tongue, and you'll see uh, if you talk or listen to scholars, there's much debate on Aramaic and its relation to Hebrew. But so what is Aramaic, and why is it so important? Aramaic is an ancient Semitic language closely related to Hebrew spoken by a people called the Arameans. This language is part of the Semitic family group of languages that included the Arameans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Hebrews, and the Arabs. This area where the language grew is in modern Syria. Southwest Turkey and parts of Lebanon and Iraq. Aramaic eventually became the predominant language of the Middle East. Scripture states that the name derives from Aram, son of Shem, grandson of Noah. First Chronicles 117, we find the lineage uh, from Noah. And it says there, The sons of Shem, Alam, Ashur, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gefer, and Meshech. Arpashad was the father of Shalah, and Shalah the father of Eber. Eber is the ancestor of the Hebrews and their language. The Aramaic Hebrew root Eber is connected with crossing over and beyond. The name Hebrew meant those, or became to be meaning, those who crossed over in reference to those who crossed over the Euphrates River with Abram and Ur to Haran and then to the land of Canaan ultimately. In reference to Jacob, we see this interesting verse in Deuteronomy 26, verse 5. And it says there, Then you shall declare before Yahweh your Elohim, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. So was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Hebrews, or were they Arameans? It's like saying, Not all Israel are Jews, but all Jews are Israel. Arameans are not Hebrews, and Hebrews are not Arameans, but they all go back to the same brothers of Shem. And Aram came first. The term Aramean comes from Arami, and it means an inhabitant of Syria. And Syria borders Israel to the northeast. To put this in perspective... When I was in northern Israel after uh, leaving the northern part up in Tel Dan, the route we were taking was so close to the border of Syria, I could see their flag, and I took this picture. You can see the Syrian flag there. I used a high-power lens. Because of the conflict between Israel and Syria, at the border is an area controlled by the UN. I took this picture as well, and this acts as a buffer zone between the two nations. Here pictured on the slide is UN vehicles. And buildings, uh, Israeli archaeologist Eli Shukran, who we were with at the time, um, called this area a demilitarized zone. The concept of Aramaic versus Hebrew is a hotly debated topic among scholars and linguists. It seems to me Aramaic evolved from the language spoken by Noah and his sons, which you could call the original language or the original tongue of Noah. I call it Hebrew. This name derived from Eber, who was the great-grandson of Noah that we just read. From the divergence of Noah's tongue, Aramaic evolved and grew along the way. It made subtle changes. Hebrew kind of was on one side. You can picture Aramaic on the other. It was adopted by different peoples as mankind multiplied across the known world at that time. They say a large part of Hebrew was borrowed from Aramaic. I say what came first, the chicken or the egg. This becomes more ambiguous as you get closer to the source. Noah, who had the original language before Yahweh, confounded the languages at Babel. However, this original language still lives on today in Hebrew and parts of Aramaic. How could it not, since the Bible has so many Aramaic root words? Many times in the New Testament are Aramaic names like Kepha. Bartholomew, Barabbas, 
In fact, many of the apostles had Aramaic names. I don't know if you knew that. Places like Golgotha, which means skull in Aramaic, or the field of blood, Al-Kadama in Acts 1.18. It says there, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judah bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Kind of gross. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called the field in their language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. That is Aramaic. The Apostle Paul ends his epistle in 1 Corinthians 16.22 with what is known as the expression Maranatha, an Aramaic phrase meaning come master. Yahshua, while on the stake, said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. An Aramaic phrase meaning, my El, my El, why have you forsaken me? Now think about that. I, I remember listening to one scholar. He said, imagine if you're, you're bilingual, which I believe Yahshua was. If, if you had a hammer and you hit your finger, and you, you could speak five languages, which language would you probably use? You'd probably use your mother tongue, right? Yahshua there, uh, crying out to Yahweh, cries out in Aramaic, and we can see that in the Greek. We can see the remnants of that. It is uh, literally sprinkled all over both New and Old Testaments. The original Hebrew, or some say Paleo-Hebrew, is known as Phoenician to linguistic scholars. Phoenician is virtually identical to Paleo-Hebrew. Some scholars, mostly Christian, believe Hebrew came first, then borrowed by the Phoenicians, but most academics say that Phoenician came first. As with everything in academia, the bulk of them will always take the side of disproving Scripture, which is sad. As sea people, the Phoenicians traded all through the known world at that time through the Mediterranean Sea, spreading this alphabet. They lived on like the western side of Israel, if you're looking at the, the ancient Phoenicians. As a result, the alphabet was labeled Phoenician because it was spread all over. Shown here on this slide is a signet ring dating to the first temple period discovered in the city of David in Jerusalem. It says, Natan Malach, the king's servant. You can read about it in 2 Kings 23.11 where it says, And he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the son at the entering of the house of Yahweh by the chamber of Natan Malach, the chamberlain, which was in the suburbs, and burned the chariots of the sun with fire. This ring was used to sign documents. It's, uh, they, they call this bula. So they, they find these, these uh, documents that were sealed. And um, this was a ring that, that signed that. It amazes me how we can dig stuff up 2,600 years later, isn't it? And you can read about it in the scriptures. I just find that just utterly amazing. It also makes it true, of course. So going back earlier, ancient Hebrew looked more like hieroglyphs. Shown on this slide is what is known as Proto-Sinaitic. It's Proto-Sinaitic script from the 19th to 15th centuries BCE. The alphabet originally came from a hieroglyph or picture origin, and these were originally thousands of pictures. And they eventually were consolidated down to 22 uh, representations, which were then used for phonetic sounds. And I'd like to take a minute and say something about pictographic Hebrew that is gaining traction on the Internet. There are those who try to decipher Hebrew words based off of their pictographic origin. And I'm not personally as dogmatic as some. I believe it's possible. I believe that some words could possibly have a deeper meaning regarding the ancient letters. For instance, the Hebrew word mayim has, uh, if you look at the ancient uh, mem, it looks like water, and it looks like water on both sides, like Moses parting the Red Sea. And some of these could have pictographic meaning. Um, but I think you need to put it in perspective of conjecture. It's interesting. Some words could have meaning, 
But to take that huge leap, which people do in deciphering scripture, where everything has some esoteric meaning by these, is, it, to me, it just, it's ludicrous. I mean, we just, you're, you're reading into the text that you cannot prove. Um, I see stuff all the time made up by pseudo-Hebrew experts with their own meaning and grasp of scripture. Because of the simplicity of it, anybody can do it. They can memorize some letters and meanings and simply insert it into the words. And charismatic teachers seem to be cropping up all over claiming to know ancient Hebrew uh, and be experts in Paleo-Hebrew pictographs. But sadly, they don't have a grasp of even classical Hebrew, the vocabulary of it or the grammar. And I caution you to take this with a grain of salt. Again, there could be some instances where maybe some of this has validity, but people have taken this and they have ran with it. And they interpret everything into these words and they make up their own stuff. Um, Dr. Michael Brown has some good videos. If you type Dr. Michael Brown pictorial Hebrew on YouTube, he's, a, uh, he's got a PhD in Semitic languages, and he breaks it down how you just essentially can't do that. You can't just start interpreting um, every single word by these pictographs because we're dealing with originally thousands of them, consolidated down to 22, um, and, and, and it just, uh, it, it's just not possible. <clears throat> There is no Rosetta Stone, by the way, and that's another issue um, that tells us exactly what these letters represent. Some you can kind of deduce by looking at it. The olive looks like an ox head, right? I mean, that's pretty, pretty understood. But then there's other ones, like the wow, they'll say is a nail, but then there's other scholars dispute that, and they say it actually is a hook holding the, the curtain in the temple. So... If we don't even have unanimity on what all these letters mean, how can you then interpret Scripture with it? So uh, I'm calling it early, Lucas. We're going to get comments on that one. <laughs> Shown here is what scholars believe is the earliest Hebrew script before Proto-Sinaitic. From the 10th century BCE, this is called the Zayit stone, written on a large boulder and found embedded in the wall of a building. It contains the complete 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but in a slightly different order than what we use today in classical Hebrew. Shown here, corresponding from right to left, we see the Wow, He, Chet, Zion, and the Tet. And today's Hebrew order would be read He, Wow, Zion, Chet, Tet. Moving on down in progression is what is known as the carpenter's stela. This is the first known inscription identified as Aramaic. Wikipedia has this write-up. It says, although it was first published in 1704, it was not identified as Aramaic until 1821 when Ulrich Frederick Kopp complained that previous scholars had left everything to the Phoenicians and nothing to the Armeans as if they could not have written at all. And sadly, that is the case in scholarship. The uh, Aramaic alphabet was based off the Phoenician or Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. As the language changed, it developed into the Aramaic square script, and that's what we use today in Hebrew. There is another Aramaic style of writing, which was developed much later by Christian communities called Syriac highly modified from ancient Aramaic. Here is some Syriac script written in the 11th century common era. You can see its similarity to Arabic, which is derived from Aramaic. There's also other Aramaic writing styles like the Nabataean alphabet, uh, for instance, which consisted of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was written in Aramaic. A small number of chapters of Daniel and Ezra were written in Aramaic. Many of the words we see in scripture have Aramaic origins. Yahshua and some of his disciples more than likely spoke it, like we had covered before, as their main language. They were probably bilingual and could speak temple Hebrew, because we know Yahshua was debating Pharisees, and probably some Greek, because the Roman Empire occupied them. So, I mean, it would be kind of foolish not to understand at least some of what's going on. So, I'm sure he, he understood all three languages. As they spread throughout, um, I'm sure they just picked up more. As the, the, the disciples and apostles went out, I'm sure they understood more and more language. They also had the gift of tongues, 
So, I mean, it kind of counteracted so many of uh, what happened at Babel. Shown here is a fragment from the Dead Sea Scrolls known as the Son of God text or the Aramaic Apocalypse. Scholars differ on who this could be referring to. Some believe a king like Antiochus Epiphanes, others a Messiah-like figure known as the Son of the Most High. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and Nabataean. This fragment is written in Jewish-Palestinian Aramaic, to be consolidated down, I guess, more descriptive. It is interesting to note that the prophetic text from Qumran speaks of distress that will come upon the land and the reign of enemies as a result. And man, if that did not come to pass. The relationship of Aramaic to Hebrew is a fascinating thing. Although today Arabic is now the predominant language, Aramaic is still spoken in certain areas of Syria and Iraq, but in different dialects. An article from the Times of Israel is called is entitled The Last of the Aramaic Speakers, recounts how the original dialect of Aramaic is almost gone. It's a bit lengthy, but I really want to read this to you because it illustrates the point. Um, This is from the Hebrew University. In a race against time, a team of elite scholars worked together to record the final remnants of a rich linguistic history. Jeffrey Kahn had almost given up, a linguist at the University of Cambridge. He was in... Toblisi, Georgia, the country, to find the last speakers of the rare dialect of Aramaic. The first of his three leads, an old man in his 80s or 90s, had a stroke the previous month and could no longer talk. The second, an elderly woman of nervous disposition, lived by herself with four howling Rottweilers who made conversation impossible. The next day, he visited the third address, a tall Soviet-style apartment block with dark corridors. A tiny old woman answered the door, and as she served him tea at the kitchen table, her hand started shaking. She was exhausted, just pouring. I didn't know if she, was, she would survive the interview, he recalls. I said, can I ask you a few questions about your language? You're one of the final speakers. This little frail arm came over the table, grabbed my wrist, and she said, ask me. Ask me anything you like. I asked her a few questions and said, I don't want to exhaust you. Have you had enough? She said no and gripping me tighter, telling me to ask everything I needed to know. She was looking at me and I knew she felt she had to tell me everything because she was the end of a line of language that goes back 3,000 years. She didn't let me go for two hours. It was very emotional. For most people, that there are any native speakers of Aramaic left at all will come as a surprise. In fact, there are half a million, and Khan is one of a tiny band of researchers trying to document their speech. But it is a race against time. The most fluent speakers are all beyond retirement age, and the language is expected to die within a generation. The final voices are with us for another 10 years, but will be silent very soon, says Khan. Partially as a result, there has been a recent surge of interest with 11 of the leading academics in the field spending up to 10 months this past year at the Institute for Advanced Studies at the Hebrew University, or Hoji, comparing notes on individual projects and working together on a new book of Neo-Aramaic. At the end of May, an academic conference marking the end of the joint study year attracted around 50 people. That was practically everyone in the world working on it, says Professor Stephen Fassberg. Casper Levias, chair in ancient Semitic languages at Huji, who co-convened the conference, is it is a hot topic, at least in certain circles. What makes the effort so difficult is that modern Aramaic is not one language, but more like a family of languages with up to 150 dialects. None of them sounded like the language of the Babylonian Talmud, or of Yahshua, I should say, they said Jesus, according to Professor Otto Jastro, professor of Arabic in the Department of Middle East and Asian Studies at the Estonian Institute of Humanities of the Tallinn University. A speaker from biblical times wouldn't understand a single word or even recognize its Aramaic. Aramaic's downfall was with its speakers. Christians, Jews, and Mandeans 
were all minorities in the Middle East and over the past century have suffered such persecution that they have mostly disappeared. Jewish speakers moved mainly to Israel between the 50s and 70s. Christian speakers are by far the larger group, perhaps as much as 85%, says Khan, moved throughout the Western Europe and America, but are also found in the Caucasus, Lebanon, and as far afield as Austria and New Zealand. Turlock, California, believe it or not, is the Mecca of Aramaic speakers. The importance of Aramaic to Hebrew is something the academics at the Hebrew University is taking very seriously. And that's the end of that article. So parts of Ezra and Daniel are written in Aramaic. And I'm going to give you my best rendition of what ancient Aramaic sounds like transcribing from the Masoretic texts in Ezra 4.17. In English it says, an answer sent to the king. But in Aramaic it says, pitgamah shalach. Malkalal. For those talking, taking our Hebrew class, you probably recognize the term Melchal, since it has the Aramaic root Melech for king. So you lived 3,000 years ago and you were a Hebrew speaker and heard someone speak in Aramaic. Could you understand them? One linguist put it this way it's like comparing English to Dutch. If you come from an English-speaking nation like America or Britain, even if you don't speak Dutch, you can recognize the language. Because they are both dialects of low German, they are related sister languages. So as a Hebrew speaker, you probably could understand some of the vocabulary, maybe could make it out a little bit. However, I think the fluid communication would probably be pretty difficult. We actually can find scripture that illustrates this point, believe it or not. It seems like there's always something in scripture that you can prove. Turn with me to 2 Kings 18, chapter, or chapter 18, verse 26. Mentioned here is the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And I have a picture of him here on this, uh, on this slide. He sends his general, and just so you know, the Assyrian name for general is Rab Shakeh. So when you hear Rab Shakeh, that means general. He sent the general to besiege Jerusalem. And so at this point, they're yelling over the wall in, in Hebrew. And then we'll pick it up. It says, Elakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rab Shakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall and who eat and drink their own waste with you? Obviously, it's getting pretty bad because the, the city is sieged at this point. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke, saying, Shemu Devar Hamalek Ha Gadol. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. So we can see here that by the time of Hezekiah, it would be hard for the Hebrews to understand Aramaic. The language had changed that much. To the point that they didn't want the people in the city to hear them yell. So they were like, hey, just say it in Aramaic. And they wanted to keep this, because uh, obviously you're probably saying some pretty rotten things about uh, Hezekiah. I don't want to deviate too much, but I do want to touch on this since we're kind of talking about Sennacherib. This is known as Sennacherib's prism. And archaeology confirms the Bible here with this prism. And written on the prism in Assyrian cuneiform tells the story of Sennacherib besieging Jerusalem, just like we read there. And just like scripture says, although confined to Jerusalem's walls, Sennacherib never conquered the city. But the northern tribes met the fate of Sennacherib in some of the most brutal ways known to man. The Assyrians were known as the most brutal of all empires. They were known to put hooks in the noses of their enemies as, as they captured them and led them away. In the Hebrew University, or the Hebrew Israel Museum, I should say, you'll see some pictures depicting the Assyrians taking the northern tribes. And you see pictures of men being filleted alive. 
It was horrific. So let's get to the Masoretes and the Nakud. Ba'ali ha Masarah in Hebrew, loosely translated, the owners of the devotion. When you look at some Hebrew, you might notice all the dots on top, inside and underneath. This is known as dotting or vowel pointing. It is also known as diacritical marks. These marks serve several functions. It indicates the vowels and it also indicates the cantillation of scripture. In Hebrew, they call it uh, uh, tami ha mikra, which I believe translates, don't hold me, it's loosely, translates to like taste the text, something like that. But uh, cantillation is a ritual chant of the Hebrew text. It's, it's kind of like, like singing it, but they chant it. It's kind of in between, I guess you could say. Um, in early Christianity, the monks would also chant. This was called the Gregorian chant, which I'm sure evolved from this method of reading. If you go to Israel, you're here on top of the, the uh, minarets. They have these speakers everywhere, and the, the um, Arabs constantly chant. It's just, after a while, I can't take it. i got to go inside. It's so loud. Um, So these Masoretic scribes added these marks around um, the early middle medieval times, if you put it in perspective, about the 5th to 10th centuries common era. Uh, there were different groups of Masoretes, too. There wasn't just one unanimous one. Each had a little different method. One popular family of Masoretes was the uh, Ben Naphtali Masoretes. Uh, the Ben Asher Masoretes were responsible for what we have today as a Masoretic text, and that's the Masoretic system that we learn here. Um, that it's also the, the Masoretic text is, is where most Protestant translations come from, uh, at least the Old Testament, like uh, the King James, the English Standard, NIV, NASV, to name a few. The Catholic Bibles, uh, like the New Jerusalem Bible, also use the Masoretic text. The Ben Asher family has been accepted as the most accurate form of the Masoretes by the Jews. Many believe they were Karaites. However, some scholars dispute those claims, so I guess it's conjecture. Here is the first verse in the book of Genesis, uh, the first verse scribed to man from the very lips of the Almighty. You will notice the dots and marks from the Masoretic text there, and you can see some cantillation marks. This is an example of Masoret Nakud right from the Masoretic text. And if I had Judy Stern or Meandy Bishop from our Hebrew class, I'm sure they'd be more than happy to uh, read this to you in Hebrew. This is one of our Hebrew memory verses, and it says, Bereshith bara Elohim et hashamayim wa'et ha'aretz. In the beginning created Elohim the heavens and the earth. So you can see the dots and points indicating the vowels there. And fun fact, I mean, you probably know this, but uh, for those that don't know, in the Old Testament, the first Hebrew word of the text of every book is the name of the book. So here you have Bereshith in the beginning. We call it Genesis. If you have the Restoration Study Bible, 4th edition, right before Genesis, we have a classical Hebrew chart um, with the uh, Aleph, Bet, and vowel points. Shown here is the vowel point portion of that chart. Again, this, is, this goes back to the Ben Asher Masoretes. You can see how each of these dots represent a vowel sound. Now remember, this goes about early, real early medieval times. This were, these were, they, they knew what the vowels were, but they were not written until this point. The names of the vowels give a hint to the way the vowels are pronounced. Long vowels like the comets for instance, or the tsere, short vowels like the kamatatuf or the kibbutz, and related vowels like the hatafpathek or hatafsegol. These series of dots help the reader in sounding out as well as syllabifying the text. If you read the Jerusalem Post, for instance, you will notice very little pointing. This is because once you learn the vowels in the vocabulary, these dots are no longer needed. Think of it like training wheels. I know sometimes in the Jerusalem Post, if there's, new, if there's a new word, they'll, they will vowel point it. Which leads me to 
Eliezer ben Yehuda. He's known as the father of modern Hebrew. He was born in Belarus in 1858. <laughs> I hear Chris laughing. It's a joke we have. His tractor's a Belarus. He believed in the state of Israel, that once again it would be reborn with the Jewish people returning to the land, which of course that did happen. He also had a vision for the language of Hebrew, which had become a dead language for communication and wanting to revive it from that liturgical language that they read in the synagogues and on the Torah scrolls. He wanted to bring it so people could communicate with it. Little history about him. He contracted tuberculosis as a young man, and his doctor told him that it was a death sentence. So he was already engaged to be married. He had to call the father and basically say, I can't marry your daughter because I don't want to give her tuberculosis and kill her. She refused. She was very adamant. She loved him and persuaded her dad to let, him, let her marry him and also persuade Eliezer. So they married, they moved to Jerusalem, where he learned to live with the disease in a more arid climate. Eliezer wanted to solve a problem. Jews were migrating to Jerusalem, and they were divided. If you came from Poland, for instance, you would associate with Jews from Poland. And uh, likewise, other areas and other regions, uh, they would only associate with those with their language, which makes sense. I mean, you can't, can't understand what they're saying, so I mean, you might as well just with the group you can understand. Uh, so to help unify the Jewish people, he created a newspaper entirely in Hebrew. The problem was the Hebrew of the Bible didn't have modern terms. That vocabulary, there was no vocabulary for modern terms. So he codified Hebrew using 8,000 words from the Bible and 20,000 words from rabbinical commentaries. Many new words were borrowed from Arabic due to the language common Semitic roots with Hebrew. He also used Canaanite words. Many of these words he changed to fit Hebrew, phonology and grammar. Uh, his new Hebrew contained Yiddish idioms as well, as well as classical Hebrew sounds and phrases. So here's how he did it. Since there was no Hebrew word for newspaper, he used the Hebrew word eighth, which means time. And he morphed that word to aethon for newspaper, since it was a time-sensitive publication. For dictionary, he took the word melah. That's the word for speech, and he made it Milone for dictionary. So in the back of his newspaper, he put a small list of new words every time it would come out for people to learn what these new words were, what they meant, but he would only list it one time. So you had to cut it out, or you had to write it down, or just remember it if, you're, if you got that good of a memory, which I do not. Um, so uh, this eventually turned into a dictionary for Eliezer. His son, Ben Zion, just a very young boy, was kept at home so he, didn't, he wasn't polluted by any other languages. It was an experiment. It is said at three years old, his mother sang to him a Russian lullaby because he was upset. So she was consoling her son. And at that moment, Ben Yehuda walked in extremely upset, you could imagine. I mean, this was, this was his life, everything. He was, this was his experiment. Scolding and yelling at his mother, the young boy, or scolding and yelling at his mother, the young boy then spoke up for, her, for his mother and said, die, Abba, die, which means stop, father, stop, in Hebrew. And at that moment, he spoke Hebrew. And Eliezer was ecstatic. The experiment worked. Several years later, Devorah contracted, sadly, Eliezer's tuberculosis and died. He had much guilt, as you could imagine, over this, and five children also died of a flu epidemic. Eliezer was devastated, and his world was turned completely upside down. Before her death, Devorah wrote a letter to her sister, Hemna, in Russia. And in that letter, she said... If you want to be a princess, come to Jerusalem and marry my Eliezer. Just as with Devorah, he refused to marry her, fearing he would give her tuberculosis. But Hemna was stubborn and refused to listen. Eliezer finally just gave in and married her. Obviously a stubborn woman. <laughs> I told my wife about this and she just shook her head. <clears throat> they had six children together, but three of them died. 
As it turned out, Hemna was the perfect fit, though, for Eliezer. <clears throat> he loved Hemna, but not in the same way as uh, Devorah. But she was a very good helpmate to him. She was very logical, and she was a great organizer, and helped him organize and produce his modern Hebrew dictionary. Her grandson made the comment that if she never came into his life, the dictionary and his work would have never been finished and would have failed, and with it, modern Hebrew. Surprisingly, Ben Yehuda was not popular among the Orthodox Jews, labeling him a heretic for turning the holy language of Hebrew into, as they call, idle chatter. The Zionist movement, also under their leader, Theodore Herzl, who was from Vienna, wanted the official language to be German. Herzl called Ben Yehuda a fanatic. But a year later, Eliezer Ben Yehuda died. He got to see um, his language revived because it became one of the three languages of Israel in 1921, an official language with English, Arabic, and then his Hebrew. If you go to, the, to Jerusalem today, you may travel on one of the city's most popular streets, Ben Yehuda Street, and I've been there. This is a fascinating linguistic chart from Noah till today. The Hebrew language shadows scripture and archaeology. In this chart, we can see the evolution of language from Proto-Hebrew to Greek to Latin script. Latin is where we get our English, for instance. You can also see modern-day Arabic at the very bottom. You can see our alphabets, how our alphabets evolved over time, at the top being the oldest under that uh, Aramaic square script, if you kind of see the, the, the pictorial hieroglyphics up there. Um, you can see the evolution as you go down. You can see how it changed and eventually into Greek. And um, I find it fascinating. So you can see over 3,500 years how that changed. The evolution of these languages proved the validity of Scripture to me. If mankind existed for millions of years, then why do we see language only evolve in the last 3,500 to 4,000. doesn't make any sense to me. As the Bible says, mankind expanded out from the Middle East, and you can see that in language. The timeline of Shem and the language that went with it is a testimony to, to the truth, and it's, it's amazing, along with archaeology. I'd like to close with this. Zephaniah 3.9, For then I will restore the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of Yahweh to serve him with one accord. Shabbat shalom.